Right, uh, for my last sessions uh, with you, I thought we would try to do something a bit different uh, this morning. Uh, and I'm sure you'll be aware of um, uh, Martin Luther's uh, approach to uh, Bible uh, study. Uh, it talks about shaking the tree. You're familiar with that image? Uh, sometimes you've got to shake the whole, fruit, uh, the whole tree. Uh, then sometimes you've got to shake each branch. And then sometimes you've got to shake each twig. Uh, and then sometimes you've got to just look very individually under each leaf uh, to uh, see what's going on. And uh, I think uh, yesterday, I think you probably agree, we spent a lot of time shaking the tree, uh, looking at big picture stuff, relationship between uh, how Jesus and Paul uh, treat uh, Torah and the ways in which you sort of try to hold uh, all of Scripture together. Um, so <clears throat> I thought today it would be quite good for us to do something a little bit close up uh, and get looking at some little leaves uh, and doing a nice sort of close textual study. And I thought that in the light of some of the conversations that I've been having with you over the past few days, when we've been talking about questions about the authority of the Bible uh, and how that applies, particularly in the public square in a situations of, of um, uh, political liberal pluralism, uh, that a good text to talk about would be Psalm 19. And because if you're looking at the question of biblical law in the public square, um, there are some very immediate obstacles which come up. Uh, you can't talk about the Bible in public square because it lacks authority. If you can establish it has authority, um, people will say it's not coherent. It's just a bunch of different things written at different times, different places. It doesn't have any ethical coherence. Uh, and the bits that make sense are contradicted by other bits that um, seem to say something very different. Or if you can say that, well, yes, it is authoritative, it is coherent. Well, the next question, uh, objection is, well, it's like Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf has a very coherent uh, ideology, but it's not virtuous. Biblical law may be coherent, but it's not virtuous. And then if you can establish the argument that it's virtuous, you say, yes, well, that doesn't apply. You can't apply it because that was then and this is now. And then if you can establish you can apply it and you can develop you know, good you know, humane policies and all the rest of it, people say, yes, but you can't communicate it uh, because um, you know, uh, liberal uh, discourse demands uh, that you appeal only to reason and not to revelation. And, and in its own kind of way, actually, Psalm 19 addresses all of these issues. Psalm 19 speaks about the authority uh, of Torah, um, it speaks about its coherence, it speaks about its virtue, it speaks about its application, it speaks about the fact that it can indeed be communicated. So I think these are all good reasons, I think, for taking a little look at Psalm uh, 19 uh, this morning. So uh, let's um, have a, uh, let's just sort of do a little uh, read through uh, on this. And, and what I'd like you to do is what we should all be doing uh, when we uh, come to our Bible study, um, which is to look at the problems in the text. So we should all be looking in every line thinking, oh gosh, that's a bit odd. I would never put it in that way. Or oh, that's a bit of a problem. What's going on here? Uh, and so as we sort of go through this text, thank you, Lauren, um, I want us to be alert for everything that's difficult and unusual um, about it. Uh, and then we'll just sort of uh, try to follow its train of thought and argument. So off we go. Receive. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals 
knowledge. There is no speech, no other words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he was set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, this is a very, very short little passage but its merit is that it focuses a lot of uh, issues which might be sort of much more diffuse or um, might seem, seem very large. Um, but even that reading of it should alert you to the fact that there's a lot of very odd things going on there. There's a lot of things which sort of don't really sort of seem to belong together, also sort of very sort of jammed up against each other. Um, but you can see that there are basically three main movements in it. Um, the psalmist starts by talking about the heavens, uh, and then he turns to talking about Torah, and then he starts talking about the human heart. So these are three effectively very different subjects. And the question is, how do they all connect together? And this is a very common technique uh, in Hebrew literature and the Hebrew Bible. It's to juxtapose things which are very different. Um, but by putting them all together in a context where they very clearly belong together, i.e. a uh, short sound like this, um, it, it forces you to reflect on what the nature of the substantive connections are between them. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take up the challenge uh, that the psalmist has sort of thrown down to us. Now, um, uh, in a lot of the writing, the scholarship on uh, Psalm uh, 19 uh, is basically to say, uh, well, I mean, these are all originally different poems. There are usually two different poems, first half and the second half. Uh, and then he just has some rather stupid scribe who didn't understand that they were like two different things uh, and just sort of jammed them all together. And so what you've got is what you always have in Hebrew Bible. You just have a mess, these poor people, you know. 
Um, and uh, so this is why you need critical scholarship to come in and sort it all out and tell you which strata everything all belongs and makes sense of it. Well, this is not how the Hebrew Bible is written. Um, and of course, this is a work of genius, as I hope we're going to, as I hope we're going to see. But what is the connections uh, between all of these seemingly uh, very disparate elements? Well, let's look first of all at, what, at what's going on with the heavenly speech. Um, so the, the psalmist is talking about uh, space, the heavens and the sky, uh, and he's also talking about time, day and night. Uh, so what he's saying is that both day and night speak. And what are they speaking about? They are speaking about the glory of God as creator. Um, there's a big debate about what it is they're actually saying. I mean, can, the, can human ears hear anything? Are there any words? Are there not any words? It's not quite clear. But as far as the psalmist is concerned, he's able to discern that what they're speaking about is the glory of God and the work of his hands. So this is clearly intelligible communication which is coming. So it may not be carried on in the form of words or speech, yet nevertheless those with ears to hear may understand. And what do they understand? Well, it says, night to night proclaims knowledge. So the substance of the speech is knowledge, and what you need to know here is that the word for knowledge here is something called the Hebrew word da'at. And da'at is very interesting because we know from the book of Proverbs that da'at is the product of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of da'at, wisdom or knowledge. Um, and uh, that phrase, the fear of the Lord, is uh, what comes up in verse 9. Exactly the same phrase in Hebrew, Yerat Adonai, the fear of the Lord. So already a little sign that these things are being stitched together. Things which seem to be completely separate are in some way very intimately connected. So uh, what the heavens are proclaiming is the product of the fear of the Lord. So there, this heavenly message has substantive moral content. It's the sort of content which, if you recognize the fear of the Lord, should lead to worship and obedience of God as creator on the part of humanity. And then we get this strange little bit about, he's suddenly talking about the sun. The sun's in a tent, and now it's like a bridegroom, and now it's like a strong man, and what is all of this about? Well, it's helpful to know here that in the ancient Near East, because um, the sun is obviously a symbol of God's glory in the cosmos, but in the context of the ancient Near East, uh, uh, the sun uh, is often associated with justice and with order. So the ancient Near Eastern king, uh, Hammurabi, uh, is named by the gods um, in, in the stele uh, to make justice prevail in the land and to rise, Hammurabi said, to rise like the sun god Shamash over all humankind to illuminate the land. So there is an association here in the ancient Near East between the sun and justice and order and kingship. Uh, and I'd suggest, as um, my proposal, is that this is actually really about sovereignty. It's, it's not just about particularly kingship, it's about sovereignty. It's about God's rule over the cosmos. And if I wanted to beef that argument a little bit more, um, 
Notice how Genesis talks about the sun ruling the day. So we have this idea between the sun and rule. So, there's, so what we have a picture here in the opening part of, of, of the psalm uh, is a notion of all of humanity being under God's sovereignty uh, and subject uh, to uh, a heavenly message that has substantial moral content regarding God's sovereignty. Now, this is all kind of quite interesting uh, from the point of view of ideas about natural law, um, because already the psalmist is, is, is making some very bold claims. He's saying that there is universal knowledge that can be potentially accessed by all human beings. He's saying that this knowledge is normative for all human beings. He's thirdly saying that this knowledge is rooted in objective reality, independent of human knowledge of that reality. And lastly, it's an idea of normativity that's based on uh, true human flourishing because the sun brings life and illumination and all of that sort of thing. So already, if you're kind of following through the argument of it, um, you know, this isn't just a kind of a pretty story about how wonderful nature is. Um, you know, this is already starting to anticipate a lot of the things that you might actually want to say about Torah, isn't it? Yeah? Okay, so let's uh, change gears and let's move into the law of the Lord. Now, what you need to know, um, and uh, Travis could probably tell you with his uh, knowledge of ancient Near East, Eastern uh, uh, scripts, uh, is that this is written in a completely different meter uh, than to the first part of the psalm. So, it's so, I mean, this is, if you were reading this in Hebrew, it would be like a massive change of gears. It would feel like you're going off into a different poem. Uh, and the psalmist is doing that because he's trying to emphasize difference but sameness at the same time. So what is he talking about in reference to the law of the Lord? Well, some people would uh, want to argue uh, that, well, this is just some sort of very general uh, notion of Torah, um, but that doesn't really work. Um, I think this is specifically talking about the covenant that God makes with Israel uh, at Sinai, um, partly because uh, the thrust of the whole psalm is concerned with speech. So the heavens speak, brackets, even though they don't. The psalmist is speaking, like the words of my mouth. And so therefore, the bit in the middle has got to be involved with speech as well. And the place where God speaks Torah is at Sinai. The other thing is that the, you'll see, you'll see this phrase, the word, the law of the Lord. So the Lord is mentioned uh, six times here. That's the uh, name of, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, Adonai. Um, so that ties it in. This is clearly talking about covenant. It's the covenant of Torah. And that fits the shape of the psalm. It starts off with the whole of the, the whole universe. Then it comes down to one people. And then it comes down to one person. It fits that, uh, that sort of narrowing. So, what does um, Torah do? Uh, well, this is all, um, Torah is clearly uh, transformative. Uh, Torah makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes, it's a bit like the sun bringing light, um, uh, and uh, it is uh, transformative in terms of its effects. And you've got this sort of interesting, very, this very tight meter, gives a very interesting sort of balancing effect. So you've got um, day to day and night to night. So it's about stability and order and cosmological um, stability. And here you have these little balancing clauses, um, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes. So it's a, it's a subtle little touch 
to say that the positive consequences of Torah, the transformative consequences of Torah, are just as natural as day and night. Um, Torah is somehow stitched into the uh, regular rhythm uh, and order of creation uh, and the universe. And just as the bridegroom is celebrated and the strong man is venerated, uh, so Torah is celebrated and venerated uh, here. Um, More to be desired are they than gold. Well, gold is like the sun. Fine gold is like the sun. Uh, in terms of its color, similarly honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So, you know, Torah is like the sun. Torah is like everything uh, that we see uh, in that um, opening stanza. And just like the sun, which is an image of God's sovereignty, Torah is an image of God's sovereignty. God rules Israel. Yahweh, the covenant God, rules Israel. Israel through Torah. There's even a sense of continuous transmission of knowledge because day-to-day pours out speech and night-to-night reveals knowledge. So each thing uh, transmits to its own kind. Day doesn't speak to night, but day speaks to day and night speaks to night. There's a continuous unbroken transmission of knowledge which might make us think about the continuous transmission of knowledge from one kind to another kind, i.e. from parent to child. Parent to child is like day to day, is like night to night. Uh, One kind, the same kind, transmits knowledge of Torah um, in Deuteronomy and Proverbs in an unbroken chain uh, of um, communication. So this juxtaposition of things which look linguistically, substantively, completely different, by their, not only by their proximity to one another, but all of this very careful stitching and illusions between one and the other to bind them together, um, is basically saying that, well, we know they're different, but there's some sort of continuity between the heavenly message, which is universal, and a body of law, Torah, which is covenanted and hence particular for a particular people. Okay? It's also saying that Torah is rooted in an objective reality. It's rooted in an objective reality that is independent of human knowledge of that reality. And it also implies that even though it's given for a particular people, it is comprehensible by all, and indeed it is normative for all human beings. Then we come to the last little bit, uh, which is uh, the psalmist's response. And by bridging from Torah, from from the uh, message of the heavens to Torah uh, to uh, David, um, it's saying that Torah is the bridge uh, between the words of, of the heavens and the words um, of the psalmist. Um, and just in the same way as nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun, so Torah probes into every area um, of the psalmist's life. Um, nothing is hidden from its heat. Nothing is hidden uh, from uh, the searching rays um, of Torah. The psalmist wants to be faultless, that's what he says, Um, I want to be faultless, and shall I be blameless? 
in the same way as Torah is perfect. Okay, it's perfect and pure and clean. Um, so what he's wanting to do here, may the words of my mouth, he wants his words to join with the words of the heavens and the sky proclaiming. In other words, he wants the desire for his heart is to participate in reality and existence as God has shaped it. Okay, he wants to be at home in the universe. He wants to belong. Um, and Torah is that bridge because it's the means by which God communicates himself um, uh, to um, uh, human beings in ways which are uh, much more um, detailed and specific uh, and, and fuller uh, than what the heavens are, are saying. Here's another critical little thing. Look at the movement in, the, in, in this last bit uh, where he says, look, um, uh, you know, I'm being warned, um, I'm at fault, um, you know, who can discern his errors, but I want to be declared innocent from hidden faults, and I also want to be free uh, from presumptuous sins. I, you know, I don't want to be under the dominion of uh, sin and idolatry. That's the meaning of great transgression. Um, he wants to be under the dominion of Torah. So you notice this, how this idea of sovereignty and dominion carries right the way through. He wants to be under the dominion of Torah uh, rather than sin or deliberate sin. Um, and so there is a movement here from disorder to order, from chaos to order. And he knows that only Torah can move him from chaos to order and uh, good government in the sense that we were hearing about yesterday of, of self-control, the ultimate form of government, isn't it? So this movement from uh, chaos to, uh, to order. And what does that make us think of? Well, of course, that makes us think of the creation story, which is where we start off. Um, God, you know, uh, speaks, uh, and the universe is created out of all of these building blocks of day and night and the sky above and the water above and the water below uh, and, and, and all of that. So, a um, little bit of a canter. Um, what would have been nice to have done would have been spent a whole hour and sort of let you kind of wrestle with it and come up with all sorts of other things, but, you know, we just had to try to keep it moving for you. But there are all kinds of things that we, we now need to take from this study going forward uh, to inform our thinking about um, authority of biblical law and its application in the public square. What the psalmist is telling us here is that, I mean, uh, people often ask what, um, you know, uh, people try to find some kind of conceptual link between the first part and, and the second part um, and come up with all sorts of ideas I won't bore you with. Um, but I think the movement is a narrative one, as I've said, because it makes you think of creation. So... The reason why the law of the Lord sequence follows naturally on from the heavens declaring the glory of God is simply because the psalmist just assumes in his head, oh, we start with creation and then we go straight on, go on to the giving of the law in Exodus. I mean, that, that is a characteristically Jewish way of thinking about the world. I, I, I think that, that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. So he's talking about the grand biblical narrative where creation is followed by the call of Abraham and then the giving uh, of Torah. Now, this is really important because what it means is that the context in which Torah is given is the whole creation horizon. 
Okay? In other words, it places the specifics of the giving of biblical law within the broader divine purpose for an ordered human society. That means we must conclude that creation on the creation horizon is the ultimate theological basis for understanding law and hence biblical law. So this covenantal framework that we have in 7 to 11 is explicitly uh, placed uh, in a creational framework and therefore universalizes its message. Okay? So God is both the creator and the teacher of mankind through his Torah. So yes, it is a unique message. The psalmist makes it very clear. It's the covenant name of God. But it's also universalizable. And we kind of really struggle with this. Um, it seems like a contradiction, and we always kind of want to play uh, one thing uh, off against another. Um, but the psalmist doesn't allow us to do that. In fact, what he's saying is that if it makes us wise and if it enlightens our eyes, then it must go with the grain of the created order. Um, Torah uh, must apply to everything, and the whole world must be organized around Torah. Um, so this is very much the approach that I've argued for in thinking about biblical law, and it's the approach I take in, in, in the book, uh, which is to say that um, if we want to understand something like Torah biblical law, Scripture must be the model for how we understand it. And if Scripture handles it in a certain way, then we must handle it in a certain way. And so what we find is that the word for Torah, the word Torah, gets used of lots of different things. In the Hebrew Bible, it's use of individual uh, legal precepts. It's use of the outcomes of judicial decisions. So when, when Moses uh, makes a decision, it's, that's said to be Torah. Then you get a book like Deuteronomy. The whole of the book is called Torah. And then you get further on, then it refers to the whole of the Pentateuch. Then you get to Isaiah, and the, the whole word of the Lord is, is, is referred to as Torah. And then you get to Psalm 119, where it's just talking about, well, all of divine revelation, including the prophets, and then you get to Psalm 19, which is saying, well, Torah, um, you know, is related to the reality of all that is. So the point is that when we're thinking about biblical law, we just can't get into the situation where we're looking at this bit or that bit, or we're privileging this bit or that bit. We have to look at the whole thing. That was the argument I was making yesterday. You can't just play off this bit about, oh, there's a covenant here, so, oh, well, you know, that's that, or... Or, um, oh, 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 we just, you know, that's somehow different to, you know, the Noahide covenant, or we just look at that, or that's somehow different to what God says, creation, or that's different to what the prophets, oh, the prophetic call to justice, that's something different. Yeah? You know, and then we just play, we bat endlessly, playing all of these things off against each other. Uh, and, and I'm afraid, um, uh, this is rather, um, welcome to my world, this is what I spend a lot of my time putting up with. Uh, <laughs> Um, and um, so people say, ah, well, the fact that you're putting uh, Torah in this creation horizon, well, you're doing what Jesus did, you know, because Jesus said in the beginning. So you've obviously got some Christianizing agenda uh, for understanding uh, biblical law. Um, so you must be anti-Semitic and um, all of that. So I've, I've had that one. Um, or, or by saying that there's a link uh, between Torah and um, uh, uh, creation, saying, well, you know, you obviously don't think 
that you know, Sinai is dispensable. We don't need that because you got it all in creation. Um, so I've had that as well. Um, but the point is, you know, we have to take seriously the way the text presented, uh, and Torah is presented within an overtly creational framework. But, you know, if you start thinking about the ethics of this, those of you who are studying ethics, I mean, this is just another thing to think about. Um, the assumption that it's possible to project any ethical viewpoint uh, onto uh, the physical universe is expressly denied in Psalm 19. It's not possible. Um, so you get this very explicit reconnection uh, between nature and ethics. And, of course, um, lots of philosophers have moved to block that movie, can't derive an is from an ought. Uh, but um, that's what this is the, the psalmist is saying, uh, that um, there is a harmony uh, between what is natural and what is ethical. So let me just wrap up this uh, study um, by saying that what the psalmist is saying, there is both continuity and discontinuity in terms of the language of the heavens uh, and Torah. Um, there's continuity in all the ways that we talked about, but there's also discontinuity um, because they are presented uh, being very separate. Um, and if I was to say, well, what is the relationship between creation and Torah? Or what is the relationship between natural law and biblical law? Well, the answer has to be the two of them are as intimately connected uh, and distinct as the two names of God that we find. So the heavens declare the glory of God. This is just the word for Elohim, uh, which is the most general pan-universalist term for the deity in the ancient world versus Adonai, covenant God there. Now, clearly, these two different expressions of you know, these two um, names of God are distinct, aren't they? And yet they are intimately connected. So that's what we have to say about the relationship between Torah and creation. They are as intimately connected and yet distinct as the two names of God that we find in the passage. And that, I think, is the best um, summary I can come up with. Um, so, um, before we just move on uh, from that, does anybody want to make any, anybody like to make any observations? Uh, just, you know, because this is like a little bit of a Bible study. Um, anybody like to make any, any things that you've spotted uh, in that passage that you would like to share? Nope? Okay, fine. Um, well, we, we've got quite a lot to, to do. I was going to take questions um, uh, probably in about 10, 15 minutes. Is that all right? I just wanted to give, give the chance for people just to make any lob in any other observations, but this is not necessary. Andrew, go, please stay. Lob away. <laughs> You're too kind. Right. Um, now, the point I was making then uh, about... Um, creation and uh, law, the fact that the, um, these are different genres, aren't they? I mean, the creation narrative is a different genre to um, uh, law, given at, at Sinai, I think we would agree. Um, so the fact that the psalmist is holding these together is, again, uh, a model uh, for us. Um, so when we think about the what is biblical law, what's its authority, how does it speak into the public square, we have to hold lots of different genres together. 
Now, if I talk about biblical law, people think, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, do you mean Exodus? Do you mean Deuteronomy? Do you mean whatever? Well, yes, that's all part of it. But of course, you can't keep all of these things in silos, separate from each other. We saw that from that passage which Mike read uh, this morning. If you remember in Proverbs, it says, um, you know, teach your children, bind it upon your heart, bind it upon your fingers, write it on the tablets. Well, these are all the things that people are commanded to do about Torah and Deuteronomy. Write it on, you know, write it on your, bind it on your frontlets, write it, teach it to your children. The same thing. You can't, you know, Proverbs and Deuteronomy, the parts of Deuteronomy that's more proverbial than Proverbs, and there's parts of Proverbs which are more legislative than parts of Deuteronomy. So, you know, we, we have this task, um, if we're going to be responsible, uh, to, you know, hold all of these different uh, genres uh, together, um, which is why if I'm asked what is biblical law, I say it is an, it is an integration uh, of different genres uh, within the Bible, um, and, or different instructional genres within the Bible, um, which together speak um, of uh, uh, society, which is ultimately accountable to God. And that's, that's the job. You have to integrate and synthesize all of these different things um, and hold them together and uh, not drive them apart. Um, so that means that we have to uh, say that all of Scripture uh, has authority. And that's a bit of a challenge because we tend naturally to think that some bits of the Bible have authority and other bits of the Bible have less authority. Um, but this is all about bringing together lots of different genres and saying it all has authority and we have to find ways of bringing it um, all uh, together. And so that then means that our challenge, uh, if we want to um, see biblical social vision applied in the public square, is that it means that we have to deal with Scripture in the way in which it's written and not try to turn it into something else. So what do I mean by that? Um, well, I mean, seemingly inconveniently for us, um, the Bible just switches around between all of these different genres all the time. Uh, so uh, the whole of, um, uh, so when, you know, when it says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, okay, that's part of a suzerain vassal treaty. But it's saying that, you know, the whole 19 chapters leading up to that is basically one vast prologue. So everything that you then read has to be read in the light of that. Um, and then as you go follow on through numbers, you get a little bit of law, and then you get a bit of story, and then you get another bit of law, and another bit of story. Then you might get a song like uh, the Song of the Sea, which we did yesterday, and you saw how important that was for understanding everything that comes. So we're just constantly switching between all these different genres all the time. Uh, and, and we kind of feel, don't we, uh, that we have to help God out because we, haven't, we, we didn't get the Bible in, in, in the form in which it should have been given. Um, so we've got to like wade in and start getting all sort of systematic. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with getting systematic about it. Um, but we can really only do that once we've learned everything there is to learn about why it's been given in the way in which it's been given. Then you can go on and do all of your triangles about the creation triangle and circles and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and um, I just have a real problem with this because, I, you know, there's a real tendency... And, and it, just, it just really oversimplifies things in a way that's, that's not helpful. Um, because and here's the problem. As soon as you start saying, well, um, the Bible has... Although we, we, we would never say this, but it, but it is what we mean when we do it. 
Um, when we sort of try to sort of take all, all of the, you know, the, the confusing stuff that we've, been, that we've got, the sort of seemingly pre-modern way of thinking. Um, and then so we turn the biblical social vision uh, into a system of abstract rules and principles. And we just sort of try to boil them all off, boil, boil them all off the text. And then we move them over here. And then we sort of re-liquify them. I mean, um, uh, uh, Randy can um, criticize my physics here. Um, but we sort of re-liquify them somewhere else. And oh, oh then, 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 you know, the clouds drop their rain and they're relevant to a new situation. But, you know, the, the, the problem there is that what it's saying is it implies that the real place where God has revealed himself is not in Scripture. It's actually somewhere else. It's in this timeless realm of abstract reasoning, which we only privilege um, because of our, um, uh, you know, uh, Greco-Roman um, style of style of thinking. Now, of course, um, you know we, we would still want to say um, that our ethical system has been derived from the Bible, but that's the giveaway. Our appeal is not to the Bible. Our, our appeal is to something that's been derived from the Bible. Big difference. So, I think that if we're really going to engage with the question of the authority of the Bible and the authority of the text, then we have to take seriously the form. Uh, in which it's um, given. And that means recognizing that our ethics, our norms, um, uh, the, the, the biblical social vision, as it were, um, is communicated in lots of different ways. And that's what we mean when we talk about biblical law. We're integrating all of these different things. So let me give you a little example. Uh, my colleague, Julian Rivers, uh, uh, talks about um, the way in which the Bible provides a very consistent critique of materialism. And we find that in biblical law, in Exodus 22, where it talks about not taking a garment in the pledge. That's a limit on materialism. We also find it in the wisdom literature in Proverbs 8, sorry, Proverbs 18, uh, where it talks about critiques, very rich people, for mistakenly uh, trusting in their wealth. We also find a critique of materialism in Jesus' direct teaching in Matthew 6, do not store up treasure uh, on earth. We also find it in the stories of the early church, Acts 4, um, about Barnabas selling his field. We find it in Paul's practical advice in 2 Corinthians uh, about the generosity of the Macedonian churches. We also find it in the apocalyptic literature about the fall of Babylon. Um, so all of these critiques uh, of, a, um, of materialism are found in all kinds of genres, the length and breadth of the Bible. But the one literary form that scripture does not contain is a comprehensive ethical system about how we should handle material things. Okay? So we have to, um, in uh, grappling with this biblical social vision, we have to grapple uh, with the Bible in the form uh, which it's uh, been given. Uh, and that means there is a job to be done in terms of a constructive task um, of making sense of the text, presenting them in their best possible light, um, and uh, um, creating sort of a coherence, coherence um, uh, around, around it. Um, I'm not saying that the texts aren't coherent, they are, but there is a work to be done in constructing and presenting them in a way uh, that pulls all of these different things together. I'm going to make uh, another point, uh, and then maybe it would be time to ask questions, we'll see. Um, so what I just tried to do for you is to um, uh, make 
biblical or a bit more complex than perhaps maybe how you thought about it. Um, which also means then that as soon as you start saying you've got to put all of these different genres together, you've got to you know, construct, um, you've, got, you've got to take a constructive approach to it, and then it means that the question of application can't be straightforward either. Right? If you can't just sort of move directly off the text, you can't just talk about abstract principles, um, then that makes the question of application more complicated. It means that we can't simply reduce the uh, questions of application to what rules does the Bible have to say on the subject? Or indeed, what does the Bible expressly say? Instead, it means we have to draw on a whole host of contextual beliefs, values, narrative, and worldview. So in other words, it's not just about the words on the page, but how the words on the page make us think. Um, let me give you a little example. Um, I think we just got about time to sneak this in. Um, uh, have a look if you've got a Bible uh, or on your phone. Um, Exodus 23. Exodus 23, verses 1 to uh, 7. This is what it says. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, don't pervert justice by siding with the crowd, and do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. It's all concerned with you know, preventing miscarriages of justice, yes? If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the uh, donkey of someone who hits you fallen down onto its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds those who see and twist the words of the righteous. Right? So you've got this, you see the problem. I mean, there's a weird handbrake turn right in the middle. So we started off talking about miscarriages of justice. Then we had something about a donkey. And then boom, we're back on to miscarriages of justice again. You know, and this is exactly, well, it's not, but it's like that, isn't it? It's been, you know, it, it's, it's putting together things that you don't think belong together for the purpose of making you think. It's not about simply the words on the page, it's what the words on the page make you think, okay? Um, and, um, and so, again, this is just the sort of thing that um, uh, biblical scholars, you know, all, oh, they all like to pile on, they all like to jump on. Something like Exodus 23, oh, well, again, stupid scribes. They can't understand that it's any different. And they, you know, and they didn't even see that they talked about it further on, and it's just re repetitious, you know. They're just filling up words on a, on, on a scroll. They don't know anything. Um, but um, can anybody guess, those of you who haven't read God, Justice, and Society, uh, can anybody guess why um, this um, uh, story about the donkey uh, might actually make very good sense where it is? Any thoughts? Now, this, this would be what um, Jewish kids do in a Torah class. Uh, they, they look at um, letters and they look at words and they think about why things might be connected. Um, and they, you know, this is why, of course, rabbinic tradition is as um, creative uh, as, as it is. Sometimes it can veer off, it can be a bit, a bit too creative. Um, but nevertheless, it's getting you to think about why things fit together. 
Any, any guesses? Okay, let me help you out here then. Right. Um, now, what you might spot, those of you who are doing uh, Bible, uh, said Bible scholarship, is that this takes a particular literary form. It is, in fact, a chiasmus. Uh, and a chiasmus is a poetic device uh, whereby um, the, uh, there is a mirroring effect created through repetition. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, um, and, and you can see the mirroring here because it starts off talking about uh, false reports uh, and, uh, and, um, uh, and miscarriages of justice. Uh, then it talks about something else, and then it comes back to it again at the end. And the focus of that mirroring device is something different in the middle, is the jam and the donut, uh, and it's meant to direct your attention to that. It's telling you that the center is the really important bit, and it's also telling you that if you understand the center, that will help you to understand the frame on either side. And the key bit about this isn't the donkey as such, um, it doesn't say if you come across a donkey or your best friend's donkey. It says if you come across your enemy's donkey. So the theme here is enmity, right? Um, and if you help um, the donkey of someone who hates you, uh, you are um, preventing enmity uh, from spreading uh, within your community. And of course, uh, at the root of all miscarriages of justice is litigation, and the root of all litigation is enmity. So what the passage is saying is, look, if you can attend to enmity and avoid enmity in your community, that is the best way of fulfilling all the other commands around it because you're not going to have litigation. If you're not going to have litigation, you're not going to have miscarriages of justice. Okay? So the point is here, folks, that you know, this is not how we think about law. I mean, you know, uh, the, the way modern legislation gets put together is that it really doesn't matter a hill of beans um, what laws are next to which laws. It's just, you know, um, uh, it just doesn't matter. Um, but this is um, presented in a particular way um, that is about shaping your worldview. This is what the psalmist is talking about. He says, it makes wise the simple. Okay? Biblical law is not exhaustive, it's not complete, but its goal is to make you wise, and wisdom is complete. If you have wisdom, you and practical wisdom, you will always know what you'll be able to discern as a matter of character, what is the right thing, what is the right policy to do, in a given situation. So, do you understand how when we're talking about application, we are light years away from a sort of a simplistic understanding of what are the rules, what are the principles, what does it say, and how do I apply that? That is a part of it, yes, but um, that's not the way in which it's been given. It's been given to do uh, a much more complex, interesting, uh, and profound job. So, if biblical law is not simply about the words on the page, but how the words on the page are meant to make you think, so that you it makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, and enlightens the eyes, it's a whole, whole body experience, um, then it's playing a role in shaping our basic worldview. So back to worldview again. And if its role is to shape our worldview, 
our values and our identity in a very profound way, then clearly this is not something that you can just switch on the moment a particular problem presents itself or a policy problem uh, presents itself or a moral dilemma. It, we're talking about here the long-term nurturing uh, of the community of faith with all of the riches and the resources of Scripture. So this is a complex, long-range task. And again, this is why it's so important that we have uh, something uh, like the Institute and something like this um, uh, uh, couple of weeks, because this is, this is the level of focus and intentionality uh, that we need to have. So again, building on what I was saying yesterday, is why biblical law needs to be known and understood so that it's part of the whole worldview out of which we then try uh, to be salt and life in public life. It means paying attention not only to the normative aspects of Scripture, but the formative aspect of Scripture. Do you follow me? It's not just um, what it says, uh, but how that is meant to change us so that we naturally tend to think uh, about things uh, in a certain kind of way. So that therefore means, and this is going to, going to try and uh, pick up on this maybe a bit later on at this time, it therefore means that when we come to do application, it must be improvised. It must be a creative, and it must be an, a creative and an uh, improvised uh, kind of uh, response. Okay? Right, um, it's 5 to uh, 11. Um, shall we just take a, let's just stop there. I want, to, I want to then go on and talk about, more particularly about authority and political pluralism. So this is probably a good place to take a break. Um, but let's just take some questions just arising from this, this session for five minutes, if you have any. Thanks for the talk, uh, Doctor. Um, I'm wondering, more so, so before the law was given here, what law did Noah appeal to, or, or how was that, like under what worldview, what philosophy did, did they operate under? Was it God, are we just saying that God only revealed himself to Noah, and then it was Noah's job to be that in his community? Like what was, how did they operate, I guess is kind okay. of like, um, well, um, uh, we only have the text uh, to give us guidance on that uh, question. Um, so if we look at the whole uh, primeval history, uh, clearly there is judgment, isn't there? Um, so, um, uh, so if there is judgment, then there must be norms which were known. Uh, um, so I think that's the answer to your question. It's to look at every judgment scene. Uh, in, in, uh, the, in the primeval history, uh, you know, whether, for example, uh, it is um, Adam and Eve, or whether it's Cain, uh, or whether it's um, uh, Noah's uh, sons, uh, so Ham, uh, or uh, whether, or, or you're talking about Pino, aren't you? Oh, but, but even, in fact, the whole um, human race, uh, you know, when it talks about, um, uh, you know, God looked upon the face of the earth and saw that there was only wickedness, Hamas. Um, so clearly, or, or indeed, miscegenation between you know um, human yeah. beings and uh, and um, you know the uh, uh, sons of God and uh, and all of that. Um, so clearly, these were all things that were understood as being wrong. Um, therefore, there must have been revelation. Uh, it must have been understood that those things were wrong. 
Um, uh, and so that is the basis on which there is, there is judgment. Um, and, and the interesting thing, again, is how that um, coheres uh, with um, what then is said to Noah in the Noahide commandments and then later on uh, in relation to in, in the giving of Torah. So it sort of rather seems that uh, what we keep getting as we progress through uh, is, is it given um, you know, with more clarity? That's why it's a gift. It's given in more specificity. But, it, but it's not at odds um, with what could have been known to some degree. Um, and then, of course, when Jesus comes, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, we get only more clarity, and we actually see somebody living it. You just, you know, how, you know, um, you know, what, you know, what does it look like for Torah to drink a cup of coffee? Well, you look at Jesus. You know, do you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's all there because of the incarnation. It's completely specific. So I think I think that's the movement, um, the movement here from the general to specific. But the absence of that specific revelation uh, doesn't mean uh, that there isn't the basis for judgment, because there very clearly is. Um, Andrew, Joe, do you want to gloss that, add anything to it? The only thing I would like to add is um, aspects of what we would see in, in the biblical law uh, were actually woven into the structure of the universe itself. So uh, you talked about the specificity and the particularity that comes out of biblical law, but there's actually really no fundamental difference between the two. So how God communicated that, and we know he spoke in the garden, we know he spoke in some way to the patriarch, the Bible says so. So there certainly is propositional revelation before the giving of Mosaic yes, law. Yes. And, and of course that happens in Genesis 4 as well in relation to Ken, you know, there was the warning. Um, so we do have those examples of God speaking specifically. Um, yeah. Anything else? Uh, um, thank you. Just really quickly, um, do you think that the um, the nations surrounding Israel in the ancient Near Eastern times was the intent of God to have them follow the Torah uh, specifically, or just in like the general equity sense? Okay. Great question. Right. Um, uh, well, okay, so the uh, conversion is, is the goal, isn't it? Um, so the nations are meant to see, uh, say, oh, what great nation is this, and convert. Um, so you would join Israel. Israel's numbers would grow. Um, and, uh, so, um, and so this is why you get stories like um, Ruth the Moabites, you know, as, as somebody who chooses to, to convert. Uh, and we see this in, in the laws relating to uh, migration and immigration. Uh, you know, you could, you know, um, there were certain things that you had to do just to be able to trade. But if you really wanted to belong, uh, then these were the things that you had to do. You had to um, uh, be observant in, 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 in a whole other way. So there is, a, there, there is an, an expectation that people will engage with Israel at different kind of levels, but Gentiles could and did convert. Um, and this is also part of the imagery uh, in Isaiah, we're looking forward to this great um, sort of um, uh, centrifugal movement of the nations up to, uh, up to uh, Jerusalem, uh, where the nations will come and worship on the mountain. It's, it's that image of uh, conversion. Um, uh, and, um, and, and then, of course, when the New Testament uh, understands the borders of Israel increasing, so, so Messiah comes, teaches the law definitively, uh, and the nations convert, um, but that's converted by Gentiles, you know, 
um, becoming part of Israel through uh, belief in Jesus and not by observing uh, all of those um, ethnic things that we talked about yesterday. And that leads uh, to the, is it centripetal? I'm looking again at um, Randy again, where it goes out. It's not all the nations coming up uh, to Jerusalem. It's about them. Is it centripetal? It's going out um, from Jerusalem then to all the corners of the earth. And, and that, that's kind of the way the story then goes on and develops. But at the time, the expectation was of conversion. Thanks for the talk. It was awesome. Um, just a question on whether you were using uh, the word Torah in different contexts during, during your talk. When I look at these, the, the, the three movements here in what mm -hmm. you've got um, in Psalm 19, it seems like the Torah is placed in the middle um, as a sort of mediator between the realities that are created in, in, in creation itself and the human heart, right? So how does man conform himself to the, to the law in each sphere, uh, if you will? But then I think you had also mentioned that the Torah is the reality of all that is itself. Mm. So I'm just wondering if, if there's a distinction there, if there's a Torah that's being used, the word Torah is being used in two different contexts there. Yeah, quick question. Thanks, Avid. Um, this is the tension that the uh, psalmist is exploring. I think, he's I think the psalmist himself was fully aware of that tension that you identified. Um, you're absolutely right to say, uh, and I, I think I probably uh, may have said this, uh, that this is the bridge. It's the bridge. So um, the psalmist is not sitting here uh, listening to the language of the heavens and going, oh, you know, um, then I, you know, uh, you know, deliver me from presumptuous sin so that I, you know, don't commit idolatry. I mean, he can't do that because he doesn't know what it is in the specific. So it's, it's Torah uh, that enables him to give that response. It's Torah that is the bridge uh, between uh, creation and the human heart. And of, course, and of course, we would all say this. I mean, nobody comes to faith through natural law. People come to faith through hearing the word of God and, you know, and, and being saved. So you're absolutely right. Um, it is the bridge. It's a necessary bridge. Um, and it's that which enables the psalmist to respond. Um, and yet, although it needs to be specific and it is particular, nevertheless, uh, and the psalmist makes that point by making them, the psalms all quite separate, but nevertheless, the psalmist keeps stitching it together to say, and yet, you can only really understand this in the light of the creation horizon, and they, and they fit together. And, and, this, and this goes back to my, my, my point that the particular is universalizable, not merely despite the fact that it's particular. I'd even argue it's because it's particular. Um, so you can have, so, here's, so, so to sum up, it can be part of the reality of all it is because the particular is universalizable. Now, does that make sense or not? What? Not as much. Okay. Um, well, um, I, I, we can anticipate some later debates later on, people like Aquinas and, and, and the scholastics. Um, I don't have, have it. In fact, well, I might have a quote. I think I might have a, no, I don't have a quotation from uh, Aquinas to hand. But he does say somewhere where he says, uh, well, you know, the natural law is the Decalogue. He says that. Um, so for a lot of the scholastics, there was, you know, there was no problem with saying something is very particular, and yet 
it is universalizable. And it seems to me that that is, okay, here, here's something that might help you. Where else do we find something that's particular but also universalizable? Answer, covenant with Abraham. That's an interesting one. The covenant is made very specifically, uh, Genesis 12, isn't it, um, with Abram uh, and your descendants, you remember how it goes on, that you may be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Okay, so there's something which is particular, and yet there's a universal context. Torah is given to Israel, particular, oh, but all the other nations are listening in, it's wisdom, and it's the same thing again, particular, but framed uh, universally because the implications are universal. And we have to hold on to both and prevent one from collapsing into the other. Okay? Right, let's take a break. Oh, no, Brian, come on, Brian, you must have your thought. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, just to, to now bring this into the realm of systematic theology. Um, would it be fair to say then, uh, following up on that last question, would it be fair to say that theologians would be right in taking from Psalm 19 here a description of the distinction and yet the relationship between general and special revelation? Absolutely. And But to follow up on that, uh, on that question, it seems to me that the psalmist is saying, and I think you were alluding to this, that we read nature rightly, maybe to borrow a term from Calvin, through the spectacles of God's special revelation. Would that be a fair, uh, systematic kind of conclusion to draw from Psalm 19? Yeah, yeah it, it, it certainly could be, yeah. Thank yeah. you. We, we, we do see um, a, a, a holding together of the Liber, the book of Liber Naturae and Liber Scripturae, the books of nature and, and, and the books of, books of Scripture. Um, yeah, but the, the, this, is, this is the beginning of quite a, uh, a, a, a debate that goes on for you know, a couple of thousand years, frankly, about what is the relationship between biblical law and natural law. And unfortunately, what tends to happen is, I think you can guess what happens. Scripture gets thrown out uh, because that's revelation, it's not reason. Uh, and then natural law just heads off on its own little merry way. Um, but, uh, you know, and, you know, and this is... And, but, but it's interesting how even uh, as late as the period of somebody like Aquinas, somebody like Aquinas is read uh, as, as a, a, assuming that scripture cannot um, possess um, natural authority. And, and yet I think that, that that's a misreading uh, of his position. Um, he does, you know, he, he does seem to be able to hold both, both together. But I think later theologians um, weren't always quite as careful, I think, to do that. Anyway, there's another bigger discussion. I'm sure we can follow that up.